Welcome, everyone, to the Behind the Budget Podcast. I'm Kushik Paul, and I'm joined by my co-host, Carl Cottingham. Carl, how are you doing? It's cold down here. It's oh. it's 20 degrees Fahrenheit, and we're about to get a foot of snow in Greenville, Mississippi. Oof. It's going to be tough on your car. Uh, It's technically not my car, so... Uh, it's I'm technically not... still your job to clean it. No, it's not, actually. But oh, we really? got a garage. We got a carport, so. Uh, oh, okay. Okay. It's, so it's not going to get buried. Uh, I remember having my car out in a garage without a covering. Oof. Tough days. Oof. It's already starting to snow outside too, so Ooh. it's uh, uh, it's getting there. So and I got the heat just so, and I'm just gonna hunker down. All right. Well, I got some new stories for you to hunker down with. So. I wanted to start off with the story about video games. Let's start with the main story that Stadia is all but dead. So this is Steven Totillo at Kotaku. Google will close its two game studios located in Montreal and Los Angeles. Neither had released any games yet. That closure will impact around 150 developers, one source familiar with Stadia operations said. The company says it will try to find those developers new roles at Google. He continues, Jade Raymond, the veteran producer who helped build Assassin's Creed for Ubisoft and moved to EA several years ago before leaving to run game creation at Stadia, is exiting the company, according to Google. Finally, Google will continue to operate the Stadia gaming service and its $10 monthly Stadia Pro service. It's unclear how many, if any, exclusive games will still come to the service, though the company has indicated that it can still sign new games and will bring more third-party releases to the platform. It nevertheless will look to many like a drawdown of the plan to have Stadia run as a bona fide competitor to console platforms. End quote. Carl, thoughts? Well, if the whole idea was for Google to get into the game space, this is kind of the nail in the coffin toward that because the whole idea of creating a service like this is to offer something that's unique to you. Uh, and if Google is no longer looking to make its own exclusives, then Google Stadia is on its way to becoming what previous cloud gaming services were in the past. Uh, versus something like a Microsoft that's trying to do its own thing with the idea. Yeah, I think you really hit the nail. I think you really hit the nail on the head on that one about. This goes against all the promises of Google in the sense of, oh, we're not just an outlet for other games. We are a console. We will release our own games. It's just another line of business that is killed by Google. Added to the growing list of things on the website, killedbygoogle.com has a long history of projects that have been killed. I did want to touch on that uh the few parts of 150 devs losing their jobs. Now, obviously, we hope they land on their feet, and the company says it'll try to find new roles for them at Google. But I can't help but wonder, It doesn't. Google doesn't seem like a place to have game de- devs, and I wonder if many of those won't find other roles at Google. I would like to say, you know, this. they took a risk joining Google as a game dev, but at the same time, if you took a risk joining another video game companies say like Microsoft, they would have far more roles for you to fill in in other studios. Like the problem with a company like Google is that primarily it's a search engine at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And while it does have YouTube, that's probably the only other successful part of Google that is up and running and it's something they technically didn't even make. Mm -hmm. Um, We're talking about an employment section that's dedicated to one thing, making video games. Mm -hmm. And Google at the moment does not have an ecosystem at all to do make video games, except working with outside publishers to potentially port their games to the streaming service. Mm -hmm. But what's the incentive for those publishers to do this now when even Google themselves all but appear to just throw the thing underneath the bus? You touch on very interesting points, but I will disagree with you about the last point about, hey, well, if Google throws in the towel, why would any other publisher continue with this? And I think 
that's a little bit away from the lesson, which is Google is now learning how difficult it is to make games. Hmm. What a huge undertaking that is, not just financially, but a time and effort sink that that goes into that. Microsoft have had learned that, forgot, and now is learning it again. Google is now finally realizing what they were taking on. So I would say this is really sad for the developers who might now have even a harder time. They were basically at the point they were at before they joined Google of finding a job. The next point is that Jade Raymond, who left Ubisoft and the Assassin's Creed franchise, went to EA and then left and went to Stadia. She's now also out of a job, but it seems like she, I hope she doesn't bear the brunt of this failure because I truly believe this is all on Google's leadership of thinking that they could enter this space and just hire away all the problems. Oh no, this, I do not fault Miss Raymond at all whatsoever. And I have to observe that she probably has had the worst luck of the developers that, that of the name developers that we know of who've worked with Google. She mm-hmm. had Assassin's Creed underneath her belt. She leaves, goes to EA, tries to found a studio there. Uh, shenanigans ensue that are kind of too large at length to discuss here, but that studio is ultimately shuttered and she decides to go to Google. Now Google is not no longer interested in doing uh, developing games for Stadia. So she's out of the job. But with the pedigree she has, um, like Assassin's Creed is still one of the biggest selling franchises out there right now. She, I think she will get on her feet fairly quickly. It's the other developers who were affected with Stadia's it all but in name shutdown that are the most pressing. Mm. The final point that Google will continue to offer its monthly Stadia Pro service, which at this point I can't see them doing very well. Anecdotally, I just by me having a YouTube premium account, I was offered Stadia Pro free for a year. And I still refuse to even redeem that code. So it's very telling that absolutely no one seems to be wanting, like uh, cheering for Stadia or talking about how great their experience has been with Stadia on and on. I wonder what happens to the rest of the industry because Amazon is now going forward with their plan of Amazon Luna. And they, before even Amazon Luna, they had started Amazon Game Studios. And that Mm -hmm. has run into turbulent times as well of, I believe it was two games that were ready to be released, released, and then canceled right after. Yep. So both those companies are trying to get into this game space, and we can see the economic reason, which is they're all there to support their biggest money maker, which is enterprise cloud services. So you build out cloud services for enterprise customers. Well, you need something for these computers to do for most of the time, Otherwise, it's entirely a, a waste of resources. Gaming provides that use. So let's say you want to move into a new market, say India. Well, it's going to take billions of dollars. If you had a video game streaming service, those customers in India would start paying for those servers. And you can use that to build out your infrastructure as you get enterprise customers. This is why Amazon and Google all wanted it for it and this is why microsoft was very smart in keeping their gaming division because they need their azure service to be bolstered but xbox is the only one that has actual video game experience and they're the ones that are doing this i think so smartly in adding their xbox x cloud service to game pass so they build out game pass as a way of saying hey let's get the user base used to a subscription for games Let's just add streaming as an extra option and get people used to that idea of, hey, well, if I have an Xbox, I'll get the subscription. Great. If I, It turns out also if I don't have an Xbox, I can get the subscription and play. Great. And then you can add it to more and more platforms as it goes on. 
and you're targeting a very, very untapped area like India, where video gaming is big and they don't have the capital for consoles necessarily, but they do have the mobile phones to support these types of services. And you can see how smart of a play this is and how much must be given to Microsoft for realizing that gaming is still one of their core pillars. It's a driver for their other more money-making business operations. So overall, I think this was expected from Stadia. I really didn't mm -hmm. expect any games, uh, especially not for Google. But I think this leaves almost like a clear path for Microsoft. Every single failure that Google and Amazon do kind of just reiterates how what a great position Microsoft is in. I would also add that when it came to the eventuality of a gaming streaming service, it was always going to be a Nintendo, a Sony, or a Microsoft that was going to do it. It was never going to be an Amazon or a Google, hard as they want to try. It was going to have to be a company that already had the pedigree and the experience of being in the gaming sphere. And because Microsoft also happens to have decades worth of experience in computers, they were probably the best positioned to do this streaming service. Good point. Carl, did you want to move on to your movie topic? Yes. Um, this week, I didn't want to talk about development. I didn't want to talk about budgets. I didn't want to talk about even producing, necessarily. I wanted to talk about accountability over entertainment. A phrase coined by Ray Fisher, who we all know as Cyborg from the Zack Snyder from the Justice League movie. And it's just the idea that certain people should have to account for certain sins over the idea of being entertained by these people. So since I brought up Ray Fisher, I wanted to talk about what bubbled up this week regarding director Josh Wheat. So from Deadline uh, by Bruce Herring, dated February 12th, more voices speak out against Buffy creator Josh Whedon's conduct. The anti-Josh Whedon jury is growing. Now, Jose Molina, a writer on the critically hailed Firefly series, has shared his experience that echoed the prior accusations of abuse against series creator and executive producer Whedon. Also voicing his support for the actresses who have spoken out is former Buffy star James Marsters, who said on, on Twitter that the Buffy set was not without challenges. Casually cruel is a perfect way of describing Josh, Molina said on Twitter, quoting prior remarks from actress Charisma Carpenter, who was the woman who started this, who got this whole train running. He thought being mean was funny. Making female writers cry during a notes session was especially hysterical. He actually liked to boast about the time he made one writer cry twice in one meeting. Molina ended his tweet with the hashtag I stand with Charisma Carpenter. So... We're kind of getting into this sphere, I should say, where where does the line draw between admiring a work versus having to deal with the offer of the work? Because Separating we, the art from the artist? Yes. Because we're sort of... it's We're in that era now where... Conduct has to be taken fully accounted for. Like, you have to own up for the stuff that you did. What you said, what you've done. And that to foster a creative environment, one, sh one has to be respectful of your collaborators, respect for, respectful of your crew, respectful of your talent, not only just to be a well-adjusted human being in polite society, but also to create a work that stands uh, for the ages. And I think the... Uh, yes, Paul. Uh, I, I think you do bring up great points. I still wanted to bring up the idea that this type of abuse has been rampant in the industry anytime you had such a creative lead or you put so much on one person as the visionary the mm -hmm. idea that this director knows best like this 
person is the auteur. And we have heard stories of abuse from like Michael Bay, from even Stanley Kubrick, of like how demanding they were of the actors and actresses and how it almost felt like there was this culture of like which director is the harder, hardest one to work with. They're the ones that are the true visionaries. And I think only now do we come to this reckoning, as you put it, where there are good directors now that are not abusive. And then you see them putting out amazing work and it really brings out the idea, wait, why do we have to put up with the worst ones? Mm -hmm. And part of me feels hopeful about that, that we're at a place now where we can challenge it. And we're also in a place where you're stepping away from that sort of idea of what a person like a Michael Bay, a Josh Whedon, or Kubrick would look like, not the, not that sort of demanding director. You have directors who are coming out that are eager for the input of their talent, eager for the input of their cinematographer. This is no longer the one-man show that is often postulated by auteur theory. It is and always has been a multi-cog system. You never hear, uh, to go back to classic Hollywood for a little bit, the names of those directors rose above the rest because they probably had better publicity, they sold, but in reality, some of the best movies of that era came from people who were working together to create a product. It wasn't the ideal product. I mean, the old school Hollywood system was not perfect by any stretch of imagination. And one could argue, and one will argue, and can prove with facts and records that the abuse in old Hollywood was far, far worse than it is today. But again, it's part of just having that accountability be made today and making it so that people do not feel threatened when they are creating this art for the public. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think there has to be, a, we have to acknowledge that, yes, it's gotten better, it will get better, but only as we confront these acts and hold responsible the people that caused them. And by no stretch of the imagination am I putting up any excuses for Josh Whedon that he had no reason to be so cruel to his workers he you could one could make the argument oh he wasn't absolutely cruel he wasn't sexually assaulting them but i think that's unfair that is a completely different side of an argument we're not even going to touch that this is straight up just a boss making a terrible workplace for his co-workers and Honestly, there's something on the absolute base level that we know is just that's not the way to do it. Maybe people did believe it at one point that, you know, you have to be a dick to get your way to do to get your vision across. But that's not the way anymore. We have great directors. I think Greta Gerwich, I think Christopher Nolan, who actors have said on set they have never been. Um, abusive or yelled or anything like that and they've been very open and accepting of feedback from actors taking their input I think overall things are getting better but there's still a lot of issues to fix right and um, and I think and I think it's actually we should say that while Charisma Carpenter really got the ball rolling with this side of the Whedon spectrum. I do want to bring up Ray Fisher. He was the one who first brought this up, but many people did not quite believe him. And part of it, you could argue, was he was being vague. But at the same time, he was probably the first person who that we know of. I could be totally wrong, and there probably were earlier accusations of misconduct by Mr. Whedon, but Ray Fisher was the one who brought up, hey, this man was being 
totally unprofessional, abusive toward the cast during the Justice League reshoots and was the one who instigated the Justice League internal investigation. And of course, Mr. Fisher has brought up other accusations against Walter Hamada and Jeff Johns, the comic book writer. But but again, we don't really know much since the results of that investigation have not been brought to light. So yeah, you bring up have... a couple of points, but I did want to say that, yeah, he was rather vague about his accusations, but I think that has to do more with the investigation right. and the legality surrounding it. Uh, Charisma Carpenter did say she participated in that investigation, and once mm-hmm. she was done, she came forward with the statement. Right, so... so but... it, it must always be remembered that it cannot be totally transparent, right? and that there is a whole process happening behind the scenes. Right, like, and that was something I wanted to point out was that because of the vagality, you had people who, who were like, "Oh, Ray Fisher is making this up because he's angry about his role in Justice League." No, that's not it. That's just the investigation running its course. He would be held in. He would be in a lot of trouble with Warner Brothers if he did go fully transparent without the clearance from Warner Brothers. So. That brings up another point. He was fired off of the Flash movie, which brings up the question, isn't that retaliation? And isn't there legal course action that can be done to protect him for speaking out against a worker and then being fired from it? Well, the problem is, from what I've understood about the development of the Flash, technically Fisher was not officially cast for the Flash it was assumed he would be part of the Flash because reports were saying Cyborg was going to play a role. But just because Cyborg was going to play a role doesn't necessarily mean development would change to write out Cyborg out and ergo write out Ray Fisher. So in theory, he you in pra- on paper, he technically wasn't fired. But in practice, he all but was some way. But it's that fine line between what was on paper and what the public perception is that is where things get a little finicky. I think it must be said about Ray Fisher being this new actor coming into this Mm -hmm. new role and being brave enough to speak out against such an established personality like Joss Whedon that... It's really commendable, the bravery he he went through to bring this up. And I think, considering that before, he was mostly known for small stage roles before he became Cyborg, that's bigger guts than most actors in Hollywood, if you ask me, because this is literally... I don't want to say it was his theatrical debut. I think he might have been in an earlier movie. But... Again, this was the first movie that he had a true starring role in, playing a very popular superhero. And just to speak out against someone as powerful and as renowned as someone like Josh Whedon, that takes a lot of that takes a lot of guts to do that and some and a lot of bravery that I don't think most of us have. Well, it's good that things are slowly getting better. We have brave people like Ray Fisher. But if only this was, it it would be nice if this was the only big um, controversy happening in Hollywood. (laughs) Yeah, we'll touch on the next one after your segment, which, Paul, you wanted to talk about January results. What do you want to talk about, about January results? Yeah, so MPD... Um, does this good report uh, around every month and January's results came in and I wanted to touch base on a few of them. So this is Matt Piscatella working for MPD over on Twitter. He mentioned, he shows the specifics about these January results and some key highlights I wanted to highlight were video game hardware, 131 million up to 319 million. That's from January of last year to January of this year. It's 144% increase. 
this is kind of obvious because it's due to new consoles coming out. Uh, similarly, $128 million in accessories up to $222 million, so 73% increase. Uh, also due to new hardware, but on another side, it's great for retailers that they're not only able to sell the consoles, but also sell the hard sell the hardware accessories that go along with it. The one key key takeaway is that software went up from three billion to four point one billion, thirty six percent increase. Now, a key point to remember is a lot of that can't be attributed to the new consoles because while mm-hmm. yes, there is a flurry to buy new games for a new system, you also need to remember that. 36% increase is a very gigantic increase for $3 billion up to $4.1 billion. It's a huge sizable increase. What I think it says more is about the state of the world, that more people are inside and they are buying more software. But another point I think it really brings up for this sizable increase is that January is still a good month for games. And many people had wondered because... The industry historically has avoided January, has avoided summer. It's really focused on the fall as release, <coughs> as releases come out. But January now we have seen is an actual viable month to release great games. And clearly the sales will back that up. Some other key points. Switch is the best selling hardware in terms of units sold for the month. PS5 is the best selling hardware in terms of dollars. So... How much money did this hardware sell and make for the company versus how many units were sold out to the public? And I think if we're comparing the two, I would say Switch is the real winner because units sold really increases that user base and Mm -hmm. makes for more potential software customers, which is always the focus of many companies. Uh, On another way to look at it, PS5 is still red hot everyone still wants it and the big bottleneck is still supply it is not at all demand and finally one of the biggest points to touch on is call of duty cold war is now the 20th best-selling game in u.s history and it came out last november that is an insane wild that is an insane figure to think about how quickly this game came well one was made two came out at a perfectly opportune moment and but three sustained that momentum to become 20th in u.s history i think it uh speaks to treyarch now becoming the de facto lead studio of call of duty how they had a similar turnaround time with call of duty black ops 4 where the campaign was taking too long they pivoted over to Battle Royale and sent out the campaign later. Sledgehammer Games, the third studio, is kind of nowhere to be seen at this point. And Mm -hmm. it's kind of telling that Treyarch is still able to keep up this momentum. And I think they have gotten even better, at least from an economic perspective. The amount of uh, time Activision gives them versus Infinity Ward. So Infinity Ward got three years, I think around three years to make uh, Modern Warfare reboot, and they came out with the big meaty campaign, uh, great multiplayer, but here comes Treyarch coming out with a smaller campaign that's still good, and critically didn't receive that much negative press about, oh, it's it's too short or anything like that. Uh, still great um, multiplayer. I wonder how much Call of Duty Warzone plays into this, though. The fact that that Battle Royale is still so popular, obviously the free gateway into Call of Duty, and that brings in players. Well, I also, as you pointed out, it is a free-to-play game, and with the Cold War stuff, you get more diverse weaponry, arguably. You get more diverse setting and character models because Mm -hmm. of it. It's basically like, think of it as like a giant expansion, like a DLC in a way and with cold war itself it's also the return of a popular sub-series of call of duty the black ops series uh, returning to its more cold war historical roots compared to more recent entries 
Yeah, it's a change in setting, but we also must remember that Call of Duty World War Two did come out a few years back. Again, going back to the roots, but I think at a certain point, the nostalgia for World War Two games has faded, and now the nostalgia mm-hmm. for Cold War games is back. Oddly yeah. enough. I think it's probably the perfect blend of they want a more modern-looking setting, but it's in the past enough that it can be considered historical. That's a good point. I still think from the economic perspective, this is nothing but great news for Activision because now they Mm -hmm. see Treyarch as, hey, you don't need three years to make a game. Clearly, you guys can do it in two. I really hope this this wasn't a result of a lot of crunching. I hope this was more about good uh, project management, good outsourcing and contracting out a lot of the more uh, day-to-day details, but then managing all of that, putting it together and keeping the scope well-designed enough where you don't let the game grow way too far out where we compared to what we see with other developers, something like CD Projekt Red of oh, we can do this, we can do this, we can do this, but call, uh, Treyarch seems to stake, uh, let's stake at this level where we know we can get this done in time, on budget, let's stick with it, and it seems to be paying off. They are now a very known quantity, and people can expect a Call of Duty to most of the time not be delayed and ship, and it's exactly what people are looking for. So nothing but great news. I'd say some people are very happy this January season and the fact that Call of Duty is selling as hot as it is, whether that's based on just the name Call of Duty or the return of the Black Ops sub-series is one thing, but I'd say there's some very happy Activision executives right now. Yeah, and let's not also forget that Warzone helping Black Ops Cold War Cold War also helps Warzone. So it's now this nice relationship where one is feeding into the other, driving up user growth. So now we see the risk that Activision took with making Call of Duty Warzone free-to-play really paid off in terms of sales. And I hope other companies see that having a free product that is made up of the core that you're selling doesn't necessarily hurt the actual business where you might make most of your profits from. Right. Well, if that's all we got on the January side, I think I'm ready to turn it over back to entertainment to something on the opposite side of the spectrum compared to Whedon. Let's go. Uh, all right. So, the man from Deadline. The Mandalorian actress Gina Carano and UTA part ways in wake of social media controversy. Uh, Gina Carano, the MMA fighter turned actress, is no longer with her agency UTA. A spokesperson confirmed the deadline Wednesday evening. This comes in the wake of Carano, who had a regular role in Disney Plus's The Mandalorian for its first two seasons, making controversial statements on social media. Lucasfilm released a statement earlier this evening saying Gina Carano is not currently employed by Lucasfilm and there are no plans for her to be in the future. Nevertheless, her social media posts denigrating people based on their cultural and religious identities are abhorrent and unacceptable. And as a quick follow-up to this part, uh, Carano herself has hit back, announcing that she was going to be doing a new movie project with Ben Shapiro's Daily Wire. And I'll be flat out honest and say it. She does have a, she did release a statement, but I'm not going to give her the good grace of reading it aloud because it's just bleh. Um, Carano will develop, produce, and star in the upcoming film, which the Daily Wire says will release exclusively to its members as the company looks to bolster its entertainment division. Details are being kept on wraps, but it will be part of Daily Wire's partnership with Bone Tomahawk producer Dallas Saunier and his Bonfire Legend Banner. Um, but I wanted to talk about this one because there's a bit of a misconception with what exactly was going on with this woman and the fine line and what politi- actual genuine politics are in play in Hollywood. Because, right. because the, the, th- the way she views it, 
she's conservative, and she got fired for her conservative views. That is not the case. Conservative views are like tax are like regulation, uh, lower taxes, small government, stuff like that. Right. She wasn't she, saying out how, oh, we should have lower taxes. Oh, we should have deregulation. Those very idealistic conservative views. This is far more social leaning views. No, we're talking about uh, just to list off the top of my head, uh, mocking of trans people via use of pronunciation. Um, mocking mask mandates in the middle of a pandemic, pr uh, pushing electoral conspiracy theories after Donald Trump's failed re-election, and as what got her in hot water today, uh, recently, anti-Semitism. So this is so not... let's let's run through the list. So we have um, heard it, uh, talking down on a marginalized group. Yep. We have. Public safety concerns. Mm -hmm. We then have uh, pushed towards sedition. Yes. And then finally, we have anti-Semitism. Two instances. Uh, two instances of anti-Semitism, because the first one, she pushed a grotesque political cartoon that show that was may as well have been ripped out of the Pillars of Zion, and the second one was trying to compare herself to Jews in Nazi Germany when that is not nearly the case whatsoever. So some people have said how uh, this is very much a attack on conservatism. It's almost like a, a new blacklist uh, back when the, the Hollywood would use a blacklist to stop uh, communists or suspected communists from working in the industry that some people have argued this is the same thing but i would argue not necessarily because these issues only came to light because she was outspoken and because mm -hmm. she felt she had to speak these issues that idea that this is her being conservative we know this is basically just her not this is based on her social views not her conservative uh views on the government necessarily and then w one of the toughest things is this is a private company deciding what is more important to them about supporting this actress or doing what its customers want them to do. There was a lot of pressure on Disney, was there not? I act well, I'm glad you brought up the private company thing because I wanted to take you step by step through the statement Lucasfilm gave. So. Gina Carano is not currently employed by Lucasfilm, and there are no plans for her to be in the future. Note, however, that they never used the words fired, uh, parted ways, or anything like that. It just said, is not currently employed. It, that is key, because what that says is that the contract that Carano had with Lucasfilm was already up. Her services with Lucasfilm were done with *The Mandalorian* season two. She, they decided to not rehire to extend that contract. Her services are no longer required. That is not firing. That is not canceling. That is a simple business transaction that has already been completed. I would argue, though, that in an, another case, like a contractor is working with the company. Yes, the company can decide not to continue this contract but if that the reason was say malice or retaliation in a court of law that would hold as hey you fired this person for something that they did so i would wonder if this line of defense would hold up in a court of law necessarily if they had made the decision to not continue her contracts based solely on her actions on social media or if this was planned from beginning well usually with a production like this they would contract the person for a number of seasons and they would have shot let's just take Mandalorian for example they shot season two earlier in the year prior to, during the pandemic and sometime prior as well so they weren't currently working 
on a Mandalorian Season 3 at the moment. So they would have been busy doing negotiation. But what is rather interesting is that you have this part, uh, citing the Deadline article again, Disney Plus had plans for Mandalorian spin-offs, including Rangers of the New Republic. I had been t the writer, I, had been told when news was leaking back in the fall about that latter series about a deal with for Corano wasn't in place. So, again, that just goes back to the contract situation where they were fully done with Corano, and they had announced uh, Rangers of the New Republic in December during the Disney Plus uh, conference call, and it was rather telling that they didn't announce who was going to be in the show. All we know was that what it was going to be about. They never once mentioned if Karana was ever going to show up or not. So my guess is, is that when her more public statements start really catching light, they decide, you know, we don't want to be crazy about it. So we're just going to sweep this underneath the rug and just not renew her contract and just let it be. But her recent posts just made so that Lucasfilm just couldn't keep quiet about it anymore and made it clear that they didn't want to work with her anymore. Yeah, it's very interesting that, you know, they use that as a factor, almost just an economic factor of when mm -hmm. negotiating a contract that, yes, we could get this actress for this long, for this much money, but she also brings along all this baggage we got to factor that in. And if they had only factored, like you said, in the timeline of events, up to the point where she's sent out the worst uh, social media post, that seems legally well within their right to do so. And I want to bring back to this Daily Wire deal as well. The thing with this, this was announced two days after, a little over a day after she was quote-unquote let go. A deal like that takes more than two days to start getting in the works. That is not how you don't make a production deal with a company, even something as small as Daily Wire, in two days. It takes at least a month. So this was obviously in the works for quite some time. I would only argue in the sense that it could have been done in two days simply to capitalize on all the buzz surrounding it and bring their project up in terms of media coverage that it would normally take a month to get this up and running but what if they had no plans for Carano and after all this controversy they decide you know what let's sign her she's part of this mission she'll get us a lot of media coverage all the people on her side will support our project and we'll deal with the the fact that everything's happening too fast a little bit later. That is also another possibility. Like, I remember when Karana was first announced for Mandalorian that this is just pointing out something that I thought was amusing. When Karana was added to Mandalorian, all the so-called right-wing conservative pop culture people were like, oh, this is... Uh, political correctness run amok simply because it was a woman joining a more down and gritty Star Wars show but the minute they find out that she was quote unquote right wing slash conservative as they were they were more than happy to change their tune and now you're seeing so many of the same people who derided her for joining Mandalorian weeping with crocodile tears that she was quote unquote fired yeah there was some uh posts coming out about oh how dare disney fire this strong woman from this series while ignoring the star wars was a series to first have a strong prominent lead in the original movies as if gina carano was the one the strong one. female of the series they they don't care is the deal to me it just i mean they care when it's convenient they care when it's convenient to them is the deal like if they they only care if the woman agrees with what they think not if they disagree with them yeah I, yeah you make your points but um, what sorry go ahead 
Oh, no, please continue. So what do you think are the actual ramifications for this firing? I mean, I see Disney Lucasfilm is in a great spot at this point. They're, this was something that they were going to do anyway. This got media attention. And their hardest supporters, who tend to skew younger and liberal, are very much in favor of this. Many people, I remember, would bring up her anti-mask-wearing policy when they're talking about how great the Mandalorian is. And now it's just gotten easier and easier to support the Mandalorian. Well, I look at it this way in terms of producing and just workplace safety. Because if she was already anti-mask beforehand... Imagine if you were working on the Mandalorian set in the middle of the pandemic and you have this actress who was thought this whole thing was a waste of time and not wearing a mask and fret threatening your personal health because of her callousness. But I also want to point out with in regards to Carano is first off, she in the grand scheme of things, she was never a major Star Wars character. And I would even go so far as to say she wasn't even a particularly good actress either. I mean, most people who go from the wrestling MMA world to acting, they have more of a failure record than they do a successful record. You have a few exceptions, of course. You have uh, Dave Bautista, Dwayne Johnson, and to a lesser extent, John Cena. But for every uh, Rock jo Dwayne Johnson... You have uh, someone like Carano who clearly wants to be an actress, but doesn't necessarily have the skill set to really sell a scene, for example. I think part of this current situation is her using the fact that she is conservative, getting all these people to her rallying cry to then watch the stuff that she's in. Because mm -hmm. now she has a following that, assuming a production company is okay with this conservative-leaning view, they're more than happy to get the extra attention, the extra viewership, and it's now an asset for her. And I also find it fast funny that for a person who claims they are being canceled, quote-unquote, they're getting a fresh new movie deal. That's not canceling. That's actually her. She still has a career path, but at the way it's going with her and the way she acts, she's never going to be able to attract. She is never going to be able to attract the partners that would get her places that she'd rather go. Short term, she'll be fine, but long term, she is probably going to have a few regrets when this is all over. Well, I guess we'll see. Only time will really tell. But based on her previous performances, I'm leaning towards your way. Yeah, like, I kind of, like, even before uh, this whole nonsense, I was never the biggest Carano fan. I thought the Cara Dune character was the weakest link in The Mandalorian, in my personal opinion. Um... But Carano... most of the roles that she has been in really showed off the physicality of her, right. like really using the fact that she was an MMA fighter. Uh, the first time I saw her was in Haywire, directed by mm -hmm. Steven Soderbergh, a uh, movie notorious for fewer dialogue. Like, you don't get a woman like Carano to spin Shakespeare, for example. You get her to beat the crap out of people. And I don't, and with the way it's going, she's going the way of straight-to-video action flicks that not many people are going to see outside of truly dedicated people who like that sort of thing. What What's interesting, though, is that that's still a market. So that truly dedicated audience still provides a market enough as an actress to make a living and i think overall everyone kind of won in this situation because 
Toronto got to go into a place where a production where they're more accepting of these views, where she'll have her hardcore audience that now know about her, that will support her. Disney avoided one one big uh, bomb ready to go off. Mm-hmm. And now the audience for Lucasfilm and Disney, they're ready to support them because of their decision to let her go. Mm-hmm. Overall, everyone, it seems like this was, in a way, inevitable. It seems mm-hmm. that she was ready to make this stance and leave because her outbursts on social media have just gotten higher and higher and higher for no real reason other than her wanting to bring it higher and higher and higher. Right. So it seemed something that was just inevitable. Like, there's a difference between being conservative and just not being a pleasant person. Because there are plenty of conservatives who have very prosperous careers in Hollywood right now. But they don't go on social media mocking masks, encouraging sedition, and just being terrible to marginalized people. Those conservatives have had plenty of opportunities, and they have had fairly successful careers, whereas a person like Carano will, she'll still find work, but she isn't exactly going to be welcomed in most polite society anymore. But it's not like she's being canceled, as she would put it. She's still going to have a career. So one interesting to, thing to bring up back to your first story about Joss Whedon was Joss Whedon was very much liberal leaning or at least many people saw him as a person who was very, as an outspoken feminist, someone who really championed the idea of a female lead on a TV show, uh, mm-hmm. strong female characters in movies. But his controversy, Gina Carano's controversy, at the end of the day, it's less about the political side of things and more about just their behavior towards Mm -hmm. other people that brings up all these issues. That's why I purposely brought these two stories together. This isn't about a, this isn't about a liberal leaf leaning entertainment professional. This isn't about a conservative woman being quote unquote canceled. It is about your behavior, your personal conduct, how you treat others in the world that needs to be held into account I don't care if you are liberal. I don't care if you are conservative. I care if you're going to be decent to your collaborators, your partners, your directors, your actresses, your cinematographers, everyone that is on a set trying to make a television show or a feature film and just treating them right. Very well said. Well, after that bit of (laughs) uh, heavy discussion on the movie side this week, um, I think that might be all the stories we have for today, Paul. Yeah, I think you're right, Carl. I hope to see you again next week. And remember, everybody, stay classy.